0: A podcast one production.
1: The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Welcome to
2: episode eight of the Trials of the Vampire. Last time the author was making good on his promise that he would deliver a truckload of corrupt police. The men who he claimed had helped in Shane's murder. A secret task force, Briars, was set up to probe the allegations, but its cover was blown by a leak to a newspaper. Amid the hue and cry, the main suspect for the murder, Mark Perry, disappeared into thin air. While Mark Perry was on the run, a one million dollar bounty was placed on his head and friends began telling stories about him to police. Investigators had to be very careful with these sources. Some were former lovers with whom Perry had history, or criminals seeking to cut deals on their own misdeeds. Much of the evidence they gave was uncorroborated hearsay and inconsistent with other information police had. There was an element of braggery in Perry's character that made his statements to friends inherently less reliable. However, that's what police had to work with. They were told that Perry hadn't left the country and was trying to source a foreign passport through criminal networks, but he was low on money. He was said to be picking fruit for cash and keeping away from his old crew. He explored the possibility of leaving Australia through the Northern Territory and getting to Europe. But Perry wasn't going far on a fruit picker's wages, not without the help of friends. And Mark's circle had diminished significantly. He'd already fallen out with his Asian connection, the Englishman Marcus Hilton, who'd been his next-door neighbour in Pattaya Beach. And then Hilton was busted by Thai police in November 2007, so there was no returning there. In any case, that's where the cops expected him to be. Most of the crooks he'd run with in Melbourne were either dead or behind bars. Many were ratting out their mates to ensure their survival. Perry's capture seemed only a matter of time. But somehow in late 2007, he just vanished. Chip Legrand of the Australian newspaper is the only journalist to have spent time with Perry.
3: Did you ask him why he ran? Yeah, I did, and I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. I mean, he knew that he was... He knew that he was under surveillance, and so I think it was as simple as him wanting to evade capture and arrest and what he assumed would be a, you know, a murder charge um, to do with Chartres Abbott, so there was no... You know, I don't know if there was any ulter- ulterior motive. He, didn't want to get, he doesn't want to go to jail.
2: With the prime target on the run, Briar's investigators were chasing their police suspects in order to test the validity of the author's murder conspiracy. There was also time for things which might have been done years before, like trying to understand the background of the victim. Shane, do you agree the time is now 19 minutes past 9am by my watch? Yeah. Alright, what is your full
4: name and address? Shane Maurice Murray chartres bot. Reservoir. So you've got two middle names. Yeah, Maurice Murray.
2: In episode five, I said that Shane would fade into the scenery of this story after his death. But I've learnt about material that sheds more light on his life and times. And further clues as to what happened to Penny in that hotel room in August 2002, if not why it happened.
4: Can you tell me who your driver is? His name is Alec Quinters. There's no problem saying that. Can you tell me what that means? It just means that he picks me up and takes me to a booking.
2: In December 2007, investigators dusted off the brief from Shane's trial and re-examined the events leading up to his murder. They spoke to key witnesses again, including Alec Winters, Shane's former driver. Alec was guarded and the police thought he knew more. I think this unlikely. I reckon Alec is just a bit paranoid after years of thinking about this intrigue. I spoke to him off record a few times before he cut off contact with me. 14 years after the event, he's still wary of the dark forces he believes claimed Shane. An actor is portraying him.
5: When Shane was locked up, he was paranoid and scared shitless. Initially, Shane was represented by legal aid. He suspected anything he was telling legal aid was being passed on to the investigating police members of the rape. So Shane gave legal aid information to test whether the information was being passed on. Shane said to his counsel that he'd been abused by his father. And the next thing, the police were on the doorstep quizzing
2: him about that. The complex relationship with his father comes up time and again in Shane's story. As I explored in Episode 2, the bizarre history of the Chartres abbots created a pathway for Shane into the world he inhabited. It was an existence conjured up more like a story than from real life. This was a tradition going back to his grandfather, the bogus minister who'd called up the spirits in Chartres House Melbourne back in the 1930s. The vampire story that Shane put about was just a modern version of it, to my way of thinking. It made him notorious, but perhaps, ultimately, it's what got Shane killed.
0: Possibly Shane had a problem differentiating between reality and fiction.
2: His first wife, Nadine Woolley, told police the vampire story was just for clients. He was actually more into Satan than Count Dracula, an actor is playing Nadine.
0: I was there when Shane's satanic phase began. He had a satanic bible, strange pictures on the wall, and a cardboard coffin in the lounge room. He was after a reaction from people who saw it.
2: At the same time, Shane was always heavily into the Christian Bible, Nadine said. And their relationship was never violent. Although, once he had bitten her hard during sex.
0: He wanted me to hurt him back. Another time, Shane left the house to get some chips and came home six hours later. He said that he got picked up by two females and had sex with them. They tied him up, paid him for sex and then gave him a beating.
2: Though he claimed to be a BDSM master, Shane was more comfortable on the receiving end of the transaction, according to a workmate at the Correction Centre, a bondage house where he occasionally worked.
1: Shane was useless at performing the dominant role at work, he had a soft temperament, he was quite natured and somewhat of a loner. He showed no signs of being a vampire. He wore normal casual clothes to and from work and never mentioned being a vampire.
2: Kathleen also poured cold water on the vampire theory when she first spoke with police. And then, six weeks after his death, she perpetuated the myth in a story for Woman's Day magazine under the headline, I'm Having a Vampire's Baby. Kathleen told of how Shane's body lay in the morgue for weeks as she battled his mother for burial rights. Kathleen won, and he was buried in Melbourne.
0: I'm just glad it's over. Shane wanted to be buried because he was scared of burning, like any good vampire. He wanted a coffin, so that's what I ordered. I think he deserves peace.
2: The consensus among Shane's friends was that he simply wasn't capable of the horrifying attack on Penny. On the night of the attack, there had been little or no sex of any kind, he told his counsellor, Sandra Gibson. She had no doubt of his innocence. No,
0: no, not not at all. There wasn't a night out of anything that was dark in there, like dark and dangerous. Like I just it was just um ebulliently open all the time. Yeah, and it was kind of like he wanted to dish it up to you. You know, like, I haven't got anything to hide. It's just me. It encouraged you to ask questions. Come on, ask me something else or you know, what do you want to know about me? As far as I know. He didn't see those injuries because he wasn't there when they were incurred. If he had seen them, I don't think he'd be able to conceal that. Not, not being the kind of person he was, that would be horrific for him to hold.
2: Shane's psychiatrist, Dr Max Gaynor, agreed. Gaynor saw Shane eight times before his death and detected no hint of mental illness. There were no psychotic symptoms that might explain a sudden burst of violence against Penny. Like Gibson, Gaynor firmly believed Shane was innocent of the rape. However, in December 2007, Alec Winters shared something new with the police. While on remand, Shane admitted that he did have rough sex with Penny on the night of the attack.
5: Shane said he'd used a large dildo on her, but she'd wanted that. He'd also bitten Penny's nipples, but again only at her request. But that was it. Shane told me that I didn't bash her or scold her with hot water and believe me, I never slashed her with a knife or tried to reef her tongue out with a pair of pliers. Alec, can you really
2: see me doing that? Winters believed that Shane was murdered by an Asian triad gang and the police were in on the kill. The conspiracy began when police allegedly planted Penny's phone in Shane's bag. Again, I make no allegations against the officers who searched Shane's house.
4: The phone is in your bag, is that right? No, I did not put it there. So someone's put it there, obviously. When was the last time you looked inside your bag? Probably, I don't think I have for a while. Not in every area and pocket because there's lots of pockets in it. So I don't go through all the pockets in my bag all the time. So who could have possibly taken it from your bag? Well, I guess it could be you guys. If you guys have Penny's phone, You guys are the ones that have all the information and she's the one who's accused me, so I don't know. But there's no way I put her phone in my bag. Penny's filed this thing and I don't know what's going on.
5: Shane said he rang Penny's phone number a few times the next day and the phone rang but was never answered.
2: I've been told by Shane's counsel that he did ring Penny's number and it was more than a few times. In fact, he dialed her number 10 times on the day after the booking. The first call was at 9.57am and the last at 10.49pm that night. All the calls went to voicemail. You might think that's a lot of calls to someone you have no reason to be concerned about. But then again, why would you try to contact a phone that was in your own bag, that you'd knowingly taken? Shane discussed the phone with Alec while he was on remand.
4: Right, the police supposedly found the phone four days later and it was still switched on. The police must have put it there. How does a phone battery last that long? It was still switched on when they arrested me four days later. It's simply not possible.
0: Shane had told me that, that there's no way known I had Penny's phone. Why would he? Yeah. yeah. Why would he take the phone? Absolutely. I mean he'd be you know it would make him even more strongly implicated if he had her phone. No sense at, at any kind of level to have her phone. So all those kind of things yeah, really fed into his, I think his deep feeling of injustice that, you know, was being brought upon him. Like, come on. Like, is there anyone here that can see it other than me that see all the flaws in this?
2: Long after the murder, police began to question whether there was more than one contract put out on Shane's life. Revenge for the attack on Penny was one motive, but there was also what Shane planned to say in the witness box. So Um, your statement said Shane believed there was police involvement... And
0: high-level corruption. High-level corruption. And I I articulated that as I knew it and and could recall it at the time.
2: But it was in a general sense. It wasn't specific.
0: Oh, well, when you say that, I mean, that policeman that I I did um, detail the fact or what happened the last time I saw Shane the day before, where we walked out of the court and the policeman that was standing behind that didn't like Shane had overheard him mentioned something about the, you know, the jigsaw pieces and how Shane, if he got up in the court the next day, would make sure they all came together again. Mm -hmm. That policeman definitely heard that. So, yes, I mentioned that. I mentioned that at that interview. And then what happened is, at the interview, the police brought out a couple of folks, because I said, I would recognise or if you threw some names at me, I would know, and they did. And I said, yes, it was that policeman.
2: But it went further than the police. And who, who was he afraid of?
0: What he, he said is that there were people in very high places, like people that had much more power that, than anyone could ever imagine. Like there were, you know, not just the I said, well, yeah, there's the police, and he'd say, no, no, Sandra, it's much bigger than the police.
4: Sandra, the police are up to their neck in this, but it doesn't stop there. If I told you their names, you would know them. They're all in this together. This will never come out unless I say something, but Sandra, I'm scared. It's
2: not entirely surprising that such a ring could exist. Sexual deviance is most prevalent in the higher echelons of a society, and wealthy, powerful men often enjoy the sense of dominion over others. In private, some are prepared to pay for it. Shane would play the submissive role in these pantomimes, and keep quiet about it. When police trawled through Shane's list of clients, they discovered there was a man with the same name as a judge. He'd booked Shane years earlier and paid him $180 for his services. He'd taken a room at a motel in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. However, police never contacted the judge to check if he was the one who'd booked Shane. It would have been a simple matter to eliminate him, but such is the reality of power in cities like Melbourne. A decision was taken to leave him alone. And so that lead dwindled away. The rest of Shane's regulars were unremarkable. There was a truck driver he would meet at a workshop out in Spotswood and a visiting businessman from Western Australia. According to Albert Ford, another driver Shane used, this West Australian guy was special. Shane used to see this
5: regular client in Carnegie, near Um Road. Shane liked the guy, and I drove him there about six times. He mentioned that he thought he would chuck it all in to be with this guy in WA.
2: If true, this might come as a shock to Kathleen. She told Woman's Day that Shane had been pestering her to marry him.
0: I told him he had to put a diamond on my finger first but he couldn't
2: afford it. Shane's first barrister, Ian McIver, told police he was surprised that Shane was with Kathleen. Particularly after Shane told him he found petite, well-groomed Asian women like Penny almost irresistible.
4: I'm trying to determine if it's a client relationship with Penny or a personal. A professional.
2: Whatever Shane told police, I can't help but feel his feelings towards Penny had gone beyond the professional. He was falling for her. She was exotic and beautiful. She offered something more than the mundane suburban life he had at home. It's revealing he dropped the pretense of his working name, Simon, on the very first booking. Sandra Gibson.
0: Yes, a lot of people wouldn't do it. I mean, that's about trust. Most people, you know, would not be inclined to do that unless there was a couple of regular clients that they had that they really trusted. And then that disclosure might occur, but otherwise, no, that's fairly sort of private and sacrosanct. You know, why do that? I go there and mm. create another
2: persona. The pattern of calls between them, including a 21-minute conversation Shane initiated three days before the attack, suggested the line between client and lover had been crossed. None of Shane's regulars had ever got so close. I'm
4: going to buy a car, I've got a licence, you know, but I'm not that keen on driving. If I can get the money together, I'm going to go buy one. I just feel trapped out here in the sticks. Cash is always the issue, and it's a problem with Kathleen, you know, she's not working that much, so it's all up to me to make the rent. I mean, I want to see you again, but it has to be for money, otherwise Kathleen will crack the shit. I know you only planned on seeing me a couple of times, I get that, but it's been, it's been fun, right? Just don't give up on me. I'll call you in a month.
2: But within three days, they were together again. Penny shed no light on why Shane had attacked her. She mentioned a dispute over payment or that Shane was upset about her talking about Shusak, the Thai man who was briefly in the room with the pair. None of it really satisfies the questions in my mind. Whatever the motive for the attack on Penny, police assumed that Shane's murder was driven by revenge. And that's where the investigation of other motives ended, as Kathleen told Woman's Day.
0: Whatever Shane knew, it died with him. And the secret will go to the grave. And I guess when something is so corrupt, it it can't afford ever to come out. So whatever response that happens will only ever be another layer of corruption or lie, deception. Like, I just think that's, you know, palpably rank. You know, it makes one feel incredibly unsafe. I don't know how one, you know, like even begins to challenge that, you know, challenge some sort of recovery of justice like where do you where do you go to
2: find it then the only hope you have is to go to the evidence i suppose or whatever you can get access to and that's often confounding and confusing in this case for example remember the call to crime stoppers that kathleen's sister Frances made to police in september 2005 she said she saw two men outside the house in the days before shane's murder I understand that in August 2007 she was interviewed again by police on this matter and gave this evidence in court. I saw
5: two guys hanging around the house about six times, maybe more, days before the shooting. I was looking at them from the front window of our place. I was usually home during the day, so I worked a night shift at a servo between 5pm and 2am. I saw a gold or bronze Ford Falcon driving in Howard Street with two men in it. One was an older guy. They were both white. The younger guy had a baseball cap, and was about 5.11. Uh, they were both smoking heavily and looking at the house. I saw the older guy writing stuff down and looking at his watch. I told Shane and Kathleen about this.
2: The author was dismissive when this account was put to him.
6: I would never conduct such sloppy surveillance and I would never write anything down on paper and I never drove a vehicle down Howard Street. When we were conducting surveillance, we would always park our car, either a white Holden Commodore or a Maroon Jaguar, at the railway car park. I've never driven a brown or gold Falcon or had access to one.
2: But there were a few points of agreement.
6: Ange wore a red baseball cap a number of times when we were conducting surveillance. I have a vague recollection of, on one occasion, of going up and knocking on Chartres Abbott's front door. I can't recall what time of day it was. No one answered the door. And I recollect someone peeking through the left-hand side window. I'm unable to describe this person or the reason why I did this." The
2: intel that Frances provided of two men she saw watching their house went no further. Nobody else in the street seemed to notice them. Frances claimed she told Shane and Kathleen, but they did nothing about it. And police couldn't make the author's account of his surveillance tally either. There'd been problems with this from the beginning of the author's confession.
6: He claimed to have been watching from the car park of the railway station, which looks directly down the street where the deceased lived.
2: But it didn't look down the street and still doesn't. From that vantage point, the author would have seen the six-metre brick wall of the panel shop on the corner. Police were stuck with this inconvenient fact but pressed on regardless. The author also claimed that Ange Goosers had gone to the court to eyeball Shane during his case as part of their surveillance. Ange and Shane had almost bumped into each other outside the courtroom, he said. There were some grainy CCTV images of a man who looked a little like Ange inside the court building, but they were inconclusive, and there were no images that showed him near Shane. And so it went for the investigators, who tried to corroborate the author's claims. In six statements made over nearly six years, they could find little to back up his claims. They were forced to rely almost exclusively on what the author told them to stand up their case, and investigators gave it a red-hot go. What had begun as a murder investigation was now an all-out war on so-called corrupt police and their criminal associates. Solving Shane's murder seemed almost a secondary consideration, but if investigators could establish how and whether Peter Lawler had obtained Shane's address, as the author had claimed, then perhaps they could achieve both aims. They searched government databases, social security, driver licensing, Medicare and electoral rolls for any checks on Shane's name and personal details. They scored a hit with the Australian tax office. We'll come back with that in a moment. On April 1, 2003, two months before Shane's murder, his name was checked on a workstation at the tax office's headquarters in Albury, New South Wales. And there was a possible link back to Lawler and Waters. Peter Spence was a former policeman and ex-colleague of the pair. He was then working as an investigator for the tax office and he was in Albury that day. He was later interviewed by Briars.
7: What I found extraordinary was during the record of interview, everything that they produced to me actually proved that it wasn't me rather than it was. They asked me numerous questions of course and then produced Uh, telephone records showing that we were in fact on the Hume Highway, probably about 100 kilometres south of Albury when the the check was done on the terminal uh, being operated under the username of Now unless we could... uh operate things by telepathy or something. I, I have no idea how this thing was supposed to happened and they still sort of weren't satisfied.
2: The police then gave him the name of another ATO employee and asked him if he knew the man. He'd never heard of him, so Spence did his own investigation and discovered the man was a Storman in the ATO's mail room in Albury when the checks were made. Spence tracked down the storeman and took a statement. An actor is playing him. A few times a week I would access the mainframe
5: and look up mainly friends and acquaintances. I was looking up birthdays. I kept a file entitled My Birthday Book and I would keep the birthday dates of all my friends. Sometimes I would check a name out of curiosity if I had read their name in an article somewhere. I read something in a newspaper article somewhere about a man who said that he was a vampire. This was during 2003 and I did a check on the mainframe at the desk I shared with when was away from her desk. I was just curious about who this person was who
2: called himself a vampire. Another lead had evaporated for the Briars investigators. It was
7: complete tunnel vision. And because of that, they failed to undertake proper inquiries on the periphery of anything and determine the facts rather than try and place people into the frame of uh, the position of being involved.
2: The author was doing his best to put as many as possible into the frame. Investigators were still trying to pin down the day at the hotel when Lawler was supposed to have given the author Shane's address. He remembered a guy named Ben, a former policeman turned lawyer, had also been there. This could only have been Ben Archbold, a former cop who had a legal practice in Sydney. He'd worked with Lawler and Waters and they were still mates. Chip Legrand of The Australian worked on this part of the story. The detectives fly up to Sydney. They go to Ben Archbold and they they so Ben, been we've got information that you're at the hotel on, the, on, on these dates yeah. and he goes to his day book there he's still got his Victoria Police day books and he yeah. goes oh that's blank Hmm, that's a problem wish I had a pencil I could write it in right now he's, he's thinking but then he goes aha I was in the big brother
3: house <laughs> <laughs> that's right That's right, he was a big brother contestant at the time. At the time, he was supposed to be this notorious meeting at the hotel. The
2: ratings are a bit soft at (laughs) that moment, but I think it was about two million people who were watching, so he had a few
3: people (laughs) to back his alibi. Yes. That's right, i have forgotten about that one. At this stage, things are getting a little bit desperate. So, because, uh, uh, you know, these investigations continued after the time where where the news of the the task force had had leaked and the cat was out of the bag. They still didn't have a case. They were still investigating. They were still trying to establish these leaks, and uh, these links.
2: Later that year in November, they caught a break. All along, they suspected that Penny knew more about the murder than she'd revealed. And finally, she opened up.
8: From the first time, the police spoke to me about anything to do with this case. I've never told the truth, and this includes my knowledge of Mark Perry. The reason I did not tell the truth is I was scared, confused, very messed up, and I didn't want the police to think that I told Mark to do it. Mark was the first person that I have ever loved. I still love him but it is a different type of love.
2: Penny recounted a conversation she had with Perry at a Melbourne pub in 2006.
8: We sat inside the pub and after saying hello, Mark whispered to me that I am the one who shot him. He was the one who did it. He said that he put his arm around the guy's neck and then shot him in the head. When he told me this, he did the actual motions with his arm and hand. He showed me by putting one arm around his neck and with the other hand he made a gun sign out of his fingers and pointed it at his head.
2: These statements were later made to the court. Here finally was a piece of testimony that fit perfectly with the forensic evidence of Shane's murder. From what Penny had described, the gun was very close to Shane's neck, almost at point blank range and the muzzle was pointing upwards which would give the bullet a vertical trajectory. And that's what the autopsy had told police on the very first day of the investigation. And so, what did police do with this new evidence? Well, nothing really.
3: It didn't fit in with with what the police wanted to find out, which was some sort of a involvement of corrupt police. And so they basically discounted that story. I mean, they, they just put it down to uh, Mark Perry trying to big note himself in front of his old girlfriend who he still carries something of a flame for and and they left it at that.
2: There's an old saying in police work, the mind of a good cop is like a parachute. It only works when it's open.
3: It got to the point where they they really only heard the things that fitted in with their preconceived idea of how this had gone down and and their minds were closed to other possibilities.
2: Despite this stunning new evidence, Briars stuck fast to the notion the author was the shooter and Perry had only commissioned the murder through Warren Shea, his mate in Queensland. Penny's confession might have turned that theory on its head. How did Perry's version of the shooting match the forensics so perfectly when the authors so completely did not? Investigators from Briars I've spoken to explain this away. They suggest the author's memory was faulty. But surely, just three years later, you would remember with some clarity the moment you took someone's life, even if you had no remorse. It's amazing to me the police didn't question this. Perhaps they'd become so invested in the author by 2009, there was no turning back. They had no choice but to believe his stories, and in him. With Mark Perry still on the run, police worked on Warren Shea to give up his mate, Chip Legrand again.
3: Warren Shay was an interesting character in this, though, because he, in a world where everyone was rating on everyone, I mean, he, he proved remarkably staunch. The police had made it clear that if he provided them any, any evidence that would implicate... Uh, police in the murder of Sean Charles Abbott or, or even implicate Mark Perry, they pretty much wiped the slate uh, for him.
2: As the pace of the investigation slowed to a walk, Force Command continued its purge of Vic Pohl's old guard. Simon Overland believed the Briars Task Force had been sabotaged. Word had leaked out from his reference group he presumed that Lawler's phone was bugged. An assistant commissioner and the secretary of the police association were both charged with perjury amid accusations they'd lied in hearings of the Office of Police Integrity. The charges never went anywhere, but their careers were all but ruined. It was all a massive waste of time and energy. Simon Overland did become the Chief Commissioner in March 2009, but it proved to be a poison chalice, according to Peter Lawler. How could matters have got so far away from the the topic of discussion, the murder of a young bloke out in a reservoir? It's it's quite extraordinary. It's exposed all the fracture lines, all the factionalism.
7: Yeah, and look, it it said a lot about uh, new age policing, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Simon, poor old Simon got caught out uh, trying to uh, mislead the public in an election environment by fudging uh, crime figures. And he paid the, he paid a very heavy price for that. Um, so maybe that, uh, that might have been his karma. <laughs> curse of the vampire. The Curse of the vampire, indeed. But...
5: In the end, the pressure proved too much for Victoria's police commissioner. I've just reached a position where I believe it's in the best interests of Victoria and
1: Victoria Police for me to leave.
2: The investigation into Shane's death and the prosecutions would roll on for 13 years. In that time, there would be four state premiers in Victoria and three police commissioners, and all of them would have to deal with the fallout from the Briars investigation. Author Liam Houlihan summed up Shane's persistent influence in a book called Once Upon a Time in Melbourne.
1: The blood of the dead man did not stop where he fell. It poured onto the reservoir street and then slowly but persistently ran into the heart of the city. It would pour into police stations as if looking for those responsible for liberating it from its host and then into the halls of power. It would run along Spring Street and into Parliament House. It would enter private rooms and wash against the ankles of powerful people, leaving them slipping, losing their footing, trying to avoid getting caught in it. Eventually, the stains of Chartres blood painted the town red and left the powerful sliding in the stuff, trying to wipe it from their papers. All the while, no one said a thing. Next time on
2: The Trials of the Vampire, Mark Perry's seven years on the run finally ends.
8: Mark would talk and then he stopped. He just said that the man is dead because of a big hole in his neck like a vampire got him.
3: And
2: the author reluctantly takes the stand.
3: The trial was delayed for a day because was sitting in prison and refusing to give evidence at all. And so, again, right to the brink, I mean, it felt like that you had this sort of master manipulator who was really playing the system uh, for all it was worth.
2: The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.